So, with that being said, chapter 14. Remember at the end of chapter 15, we left Paul at Iconium. Um, Present-day Konya, still a city in Turkey. So we're in central Turkey, what we call Turkey. We're in central Turkey, uh, sort of south-central Turkey. This is Paul's first missionary journey. We left him in Iconia, um, so that's where we pick him up. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they, and as Barnabas, as Paul, and probably some others, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. Again, if there is a Jewish synagogue, that's where Paul always starts. Uh, even after, as we saw in the last chapter, after he kind of turns more toward the Gentiles, if there is a Jewish synagogue, that's where he always starts. That's really important here because he's getting ready to go to a city now. He's getting ready to go to a city where there is no Jewish synagogue. And you'll notice his sermon in a, a city where there's no Jewish synagogue is very different than what he preaches in a Jewish synagogue. Because again, obviously, if he goes to a Jewish synagogue and there are Jews or there are Gentiles who have attached themselves to, to the Jewish synagogue, they have the Bible. They know the Bible, what we call Old Testament. They know the scriptures. They know about the coming of the Messiah. They know about the prophecies and the promises. Well, it's very different, you're going to notice, in Lystra and then in Athens, is very different when, he, when he's got a group in front of him that knows none of that. He can't preach Jewish Messiah to those people. Uh, there's only two occurrences in the book of Acts where he's not preaching to people who already know some of the Jewish Bible. Um, but here in Iconium, because if at all possible, he goes to the Jewish synagogue first because they're already two-thirds of the way to Jesus. So that they go to Jewish synagogue. And he spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Again, those Greeks would be the technical term God-fearers. Those were the Gentiles, the Greeks, the non-Jews that had attached themselves to the, to the faith of the Jews. Again, one of the things you learn if you read Greek mythology, if you travel Greece, or if you watch the old 1950s movies, is the gods, the the the, the plethora of gods among the Greeks and the Romans, they weren't even good people. They were not ethical. They were petty. They were vindictive. So their gods weren't holy. Um, the religion of the Greeks and Romans did not produce strong families, strong marriages, um, and, and good moral people. So there were a lot of things that people who were Greek and Roman found attractive among the Jews. A holy god an ethical system. So those were the God-fearers. That's why when Paul would go to synagogue, he would find the ethnic Jews and those people who were trying to embrace uh, at least the religion of the Jews. So here he is speaking to a great number. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews, and they are, they're, they're like, and you see this in the book of Acts. Some of you aren't old enough to remember the old video game Pac-Man it was a big deal when I went to college. I played a lot of Pac-Man in college. But you got, you know, you're trying to get away from that thing that's trying to eat, it, eat, trying to eat you up. But it's on your heels, nipping at your heels the whole time you're playing Pac-Man. Well, that's what you see in the book of Acts. I mean, Paul runs into trouble with the Jewish religious leaders in the cities if they happen to be there. But they don't even need to be there. The Jewish religious leaders from the last city will chase Paul to the city that he travels to. Um, so everywhere he goes, they're nipping in his heels. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds 
against the brothers, against the Christian disciples. Verse 3, so they remained, so they remained for a long time. So notice that long time. In the book of Acts, you can have a long time, a long period, be covered in one verse. That's why the chronology in the book of Acts can be interesting. Um, so here he is in Iconium. He's, he's experiencing difficulty, but he stayed there a long time. If we, and we can look at the chronology of Paul, because there are things in Paul's journeys we can date. Uh, it, probably this long time they stayed at Iconium was probably the winter season. So they probably stayed in Iconium for the whole winter season. Something else you need to understand about Paul at this point. You don't get it from the book of Acts, but if you read Galatians, you will see that while Paul is doing this ministry here in Galatia, it's what we call this part of modern-day Turkey, while Paul was doing this ministry here in Galatia, he was not well. He was sick somehow. He says that in his letter to the Galatians. He's going to write back to these people. He says, you know, when I first came to you, I was sick. I had infirmity. I wasn't doing well. We don't know exactly what the illness was. Um, a lot of people tend to think, and again, it's almost the geography here, they tend to think it might have been malaria that he attracted in Perga. And that's one of the reasons he left Pergen headed for the mountainous region to get away from the more marshy region that is still to this day an area where malaria could be attracted, uh, could be attracted if that was still floating around. Uh, so a lot of people think he had recurring bouts of malaria, but somehow he was sick. So what I want you to notice, though, what Paul wants you to notice, here the Jews are coming after him, here's the persecution, and he is sick when he's doing this. So um, one of the reasons for learning the geography of Paul is to, to learn the passion of Paul. Yeah, it had been really easy for him to just have stayed in bed and stayed home. But he's so passionate about what he's doing, taking the gospel to the world. He's sick, he's traveling, he's traveling great distances. Uh, you're going to see him get stoned, perhaps to death, in a few moments. But um, he's continuing his journeys here. He stays for a long time, perhaps the whole winter, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done in their hands. So again, uh, there's John Wimber's, who died several years ago, there's John Wimber's phrase, power evangelism. So what you see in the book of Acts, you see signs and wonders, and that's the technical term in the book of Acts, and in Christian theology, you see signs and wonders being granted to confirm the preaching of the gospel. Signs and wonders, uh, the miraculous, is not granted for the sake of the miraculous. It is granted for the sake of confirming the truth of the gospel. So that's what we call now power evangelism. Uh, Paul wouldn't have known that term. He would just known that to be normal. That as they were preaching the gospel, signs and wonders would be happening. And that was, in, that was very important in establishing the early Christian movement. So here he's preaching, preaching boldly. Um, look at verse 4. But the, city, but the people of the city were divided. 
Division has always been part of what the Christian faith has dealt with. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Interesting phrase there, the apostles. Because at this point, the word apostle, this is the first time you have the word apostle being used when it's not limited to those who saw Jesus those who had been sent out by Jesus. Because here when it says the apostles, it's plural. That includes Barnabas. So obviously there's, you can do a couple things here. The apostles is a technical term for those who were sent out by Jesus. That's why Paul, particularly to the church at Corinth, has to keep saying he is an apostle because he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. But technically, that's an apostle, someone who is sent out. The word means sent out. Someone who is sent out by Jesus. Uh, And that's usually the way we use apostles to differentiate from disciples or whatever. Uh, Those 12 that were sent out by Jesus. uh, You lose lose, um, Judas, but you get Paul. Uh, So those technically they're apostles, but here in this chapter of Acts, all of a sudden the word apostles, plural, is being used for at least Barnabas also. Uh, Now you can do two things with that. You can say that the apostolic ministry is being broadened. That's why in some traditions, some church settings today, there are some churches, you know, that will tell you they're being being pastored by apostles so-and-so. So some churches today, we use the word apostles for present day, uh, people who are sent out to do evangelism, who are sent out to plant churches. Uh, and, and this is their biblical warrant. It does look like um, here's someone besides the original 12 or 11 plus Paul the, being referred to as apostles. Or what some people do is just say, don't translate it apostles, just say messengers. And that works too. The Greek apostolos just means someone who is sent out with a message. So um, whether you make the decision to use the word apostles in our age or not, here's where you get the biblical warrant that allows you to perhaps use the word apostles in in our age. Anyway, perhaps they're both just being called messengers. They've been sent out. They've been sent out to do evangelism, plant churches. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, we know that's coming from the Jews because that's how the Jews carried out capital punishment. The Romans, the Greco-Romans did not. So again, this is a Gentile-Jewish mix going after these early Christians. Uh, they, they get the rulers, the, the, the local officials, to side with them to mistreat and stone them. Uh, notice what Paul and Barnabas and the others do. They learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. You need to think about this for a little bit. Here they flee at this point. They flee the troubles. There are times, obviously, they choose not to flee the troubles, such as when they get to Lystra in a few moments. They, they sometimes flee, they sometimes don't flee. What, what, I, what I will not allow for is they're not fleeing because they're scared to death. They're not fleeing out of fear. They're not fleeing... Um, because life has gotten tough, life has gotten hard. We might, 
I don't think that's what they're doing. I think they're leaving at this point for a couple reasons. One, um, they've been there a while. Remember, we just saw that they were there for a long time. A church has been established. Paul's going to write the letter of Galatians back to these churches. A church has been established. Um, so they were there for a while. They're not just tucking tails and running at this point. They're leaving, I think, because it's time to go. It's time to dust the feet off, dust the, uh, shake the dust off your feet and leave. Uh, they're, they're being prudent. Uh, they, they are apostles. They're being sent. They've been sent to do evangelism and plant churches. So I don't just see them fleeing because they're afraid. Uh, because to see them doing that, that's contrary to what the book of Acts says over and over and over again. They preach boldly to the point of death if necessary. But part of what you need to see with Paul here, and some of you that were with us on the trip to uh, Greece recently, you saw this, Paul was a good strategist. Again, the mission took priority. The mission took priority over his personal preferences. He's sick. He's being mistreated. But the mission takes priority. So I think he, I think he left Iconia here for Lister and Derby in, in Laconia, Iconium for Laconia. He, he left for missional reasons. He's being prudent. He's not just tucking his tail between his legs and running. Uh, he's planted a church there, and that's, that's what his mission is. He's staying true to his mission. Uh, Christians today, by the way, need to learn how to stay laser-focused on their mission because we can get involved in being all things to all people as a church. But you need to be laser-focused on what we're called to do. So, yeah, they leave. They leave. They go to Lystra and Derby. So now let's pick up with them in Lystra. Uh, you're going to spend a chunk of time in Lystra and just a reference to Derby. Um, let me say something about Lystra before we get there. You're going to notice, as you read, there's no synagogue. So he doesn't find a synagogue when he goes there. So where he will go to, and you've got to read between the lines, but you know this, where he goes to, and you see it here in the text, he goes to what many of you, some of you saw a couple weeks ago, a week or so ago, he goes to the Agora, the Agora or the Agora. He goes to the marketplace. If he has no synagogue, he goes to the marketplace. He will do that in Athens. He's going to do that in Lystra because there's no synagogue. Again, he has turned toward the Gentiles. Uh, sometimes he just, in the past and sometimes even in the future, he skips cities because there's no synagogue. But he's being led, and this is another reason why I think he left Iconium for the region of Laconia. He's being led by the Spirit. He's being obedient to the Spirit. So he goes, there's no synagogue, so he goes to the Agora. He goes to the Agora, and that's where we pick him up. Oh, by the way, Lystra too, something else you don't know here, but I'm glad we got the rest of the Bible. It is in Lystra he meets some very important people. Lois, Eunice, Eunuchy, or Eunice, and Timothy. He meets them in Lystra. Uh, he's, uh, he's going to pick Timothy up on the next trip to Lystra. But so Lystra is a very fertile, was a very fertile ministry for him in a lot of ways. So verse 8, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. And you're going to see just how dramatically he could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. 
So again, dramatically lame, crippled from birth, never walked. Verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking. They're in the Agora. They're in the marketplace. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, look, watch this. Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith. He had faith to be made well. Um, Luke, how do you see faith for a, in a lame man who hasn't ever walked? How do you see faith? Um, again, I'm so glad we got the rest of the Bible. Uh, I think if you would pull Luke aside or pull Paul aside and say, Paul, how did you see faith? You're in the agora. You're in the marketplace. you got all these people around you. How did you see faith? You should ask those kind of questions as you read text. How do you see faith? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit, he's going to talk about one of those gifts being a word of knowledge. God can give you a word of knowledge where you learn something from God. You don't just learn something through your five senses. A word of knowledge is a supernatural impartation of wisdom or information even. Uh, Paul's going to talk about a word of knowledge, uh, about that gift in 1 Corinthians. So I think that's what's happening here. Paul has a word of knowledge. He sees this lame person. He knows this lame person has faith. Some has enough faith or adequate faith or faith to a certain extent, faith like a mustard seed. Somehow this, this lame person has faith. So Paul is going to um, access that faith and bring healing to his life. Again, signs and wonders accommodating or accompanying the preaching of the gospel. Look at verse 10. So he, he sees the faith in the lame man, and Paul says in a loud voice, because again, it's not just for the sake of the lame man. It's for the sake of the preaching and the confirming of the gospel. So he says in a loud voice there in the Agora, uh, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up. That's dramatic. Dr. Luke, by the way, is showing you how dramatic it is. He sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying, saying in Lyconian. Now this is going to be interesting. This is a unique part of the book of Acts. You're in south-central Turkey, by our figuring today. They're in a region, the region of Lyconia, where you find the cities of Lystra and Derby. Um, they have their own dialect. Now, for those of you who have Scot-Irish heritage, her heritage that are, they have Celtic heritage, where there's Scotland, Ireland, Wales, um, Celtic the Celtic people probably, we're told, originated in central Turkey and kept migrating west. Uh, they had to get to Ireland and Scotland from somewhere. Uh, so the Lyconian dialect is probably some sort of a Celtic dialect. Maybe close to, if you go to Scotland and Ireland today and listen to Gaelic, they have their own language. And, you know, there, that's not English in Scotland and Ireland. So here Paul Paul is preaching in what language? Greek. Uh, that's the common language. Everybody knows that. Uh, he also spoke Hebrew, probably could, would, could deal in Latin too. Uh, but he's preaching in Greek, and that's important sometimes. That's why the women had to get disruptive in Corinth in the worship services, because the women only knew Latin. They had to keep asking their husbands, what's he saying, what's he saying, what's he saying? And that's why Paul says, would you please be quiet? 
Ask your husbands at home to translate. Because, again, you've got different languages being used here. So Paul's preaching in Greek. He, would, he, he knew Aramaic, Hebrew well, and he, he knew Latin well. Well, there's a local dialect here. Well, after he does this healing, these people get so excited, they just kind of uh, flow into their local dialect. So here's Barnabas and Paul trying to figure out what's going on because they don't know the Lyconian dialect. Um, so they get all excited, and the crowd's raising their voices in Lyconian. Look what they're saying. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, or if you're reading King James, it uses the Roman Jupiter. Uh, and Paul Hermes, or if you're reading the King James, it uses the Roman Mercury. Uh, so they think that Barnabas is Zeus. They think Paul is Hermes. Because, um, again, this is a pagan culture. There's no synagogue here. This is full-blown paganism like you're going to encounter in Athens. So when, when Paul heals this man, they get excited, and they, their worldview just says, well, hey, this is wonderful, this is spectacular. This must be Zeus. must be Zeus and, and, and his spokesperson, Hermes, or Jupiter and Mercury if you're Roman. So that's the way they're interpreting what they're seeing. Um, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. That tells us something. They're referring to Barnabas as Zeus. Barnabas must have been the more imposing person. And from the one physical description we have of Paul written in the third century, that's not, that's not hard to accomplish. Uh, probably Barnabas is the more imposing person because they think he's Zeus. Now they think Paul is Hermes, or Mercury. Why? Mercury's the spokesperson for Zeus. Mercury's the one that does the talking. Mercury's the one that does the speaking. So in their worldview, this has to be Zeus and his spokesperson, Mercury, or, or Hermes. Um, verse 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple is at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now at this point, um, this is probably when Paul looked at Barnabas and said, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. <laughs> it's going to be like when he went to Athens. This is a full-blown pagan polytheistic city. So here, they, they want to start offering sacrifices to these gods that have shown up. Um, by the way, there is a myth. Um, there is a Greco-Roman myth uh, that says that, that, that Zeus... And uh, Hermes visited um, Lystra, and nobody recognized them except one elderly couple. So Zeus, because again, these ancient gods were not good people. Zeus and Hermes destroyed the city, except for those ancient, except for that elderly couple. So what may be going on here is these people know that story. And they're like, we're not going to let that happen again. We're going to recognize Zeus and Hermes this time. So they want to offer sacrifices to Paul and, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, as gods. And again, you can probably figure out how that's going to end. Um, so look, look, at, look at verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas, again, he's been called apostle, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, somebody had to translate the Lyconian 
to them. Paul's saying, what is going on? What are these crazy people doing? Well, somebody has to tell them in Greek what, what, what's going on. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd crying out, because Paul and Barnabas are good Jews, crying out, men, why are you doing these horrible, terrible, pagan, polytheistic things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. So here's where you see, you're going to get a longer example of this in Acts 17. Here's where you see how Paul would preach to a group that knows nothing about the Jewish Bible. Knows nothing about Judaism. He's speaking to purebred pagans at this point. So he's not saying, you know, according to Psalm 42, you shouldn't be doing this. Because they don't know what Psalm 42 is. So he can't use Bible, he can't use Hebrew scriptures to speak to these people. Same thing's going to happen in Athens. So notice how he preaches. You get a little taste of Paul's preaching to the pagans here. He can't use scripture. He can't use Jewish tradition. So he says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, the words of gospel there, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. He's trying to turn them from their vain pagan ways to the one true and living God. He's just trying, at this point, he's trying to teach monotheism. One God, one God. Turn from these vain things, these gods you're worshiping, to a living God uh, who made the heaven and earth, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and all that is in them. He's using what we call natural revelation. He's not using specific revelation. He's not quoting Bible to them. He's saying, you know, turn to the one true living God, the God who made all of creation. At that point, what he's saying to them is, turn to the one true living God who made all of this, i.e., the God that's more powerful than your list of gods. The, the, the more powerful God than Zeus or Hermes or all the rest. So he's preaching to them using natural revelation, using logic. Verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. When he says this to the Athens, he says, God overlooked your past ignorance. So we're cutting you some slack for believing in things like Zeus and Mercury and all the rest. Uh, we're cutting you some slack. God allowed you to do that, but something has happened. Something has changed. You can't continue on in these ways anymore. But God did allow the nations to walk in their own ways, ways of ignorance. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. He's still preaching to these people. For he did good He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So that, there's a taste of his sermon to pagans. It's like when you go to someone who doesn't believe in God, much less believe that God's been revealed in Jesus Christ, you may want to just work on getting that person to accept a higher power. Work on getting that, just like in C.S. Lewis, he became a theist before he became a Christian. He came to accept God. That was his first conversion. He accepted the logical, rational, reasonable assumption, conviction that there is a God. Now, in the Christian faith, you can't stop there. The devil believes in God. But for some people, you've got to get them there first, like you did C.S. Lewis or these pagans. You've got to get them to believe in God, one God, and it's not them. It's not the gods they've created. You've got to get them to God. And you can do that with natural revelation. You know, I mean, you look at creation, there has to be a mind 
behind creation. There's an order to creation, so there has to be an, an orderer to creation. You, you, can, you can preach one God to people. That's not enough. That's not preaching Jesus. That's step two. But here he's got to get these people to step one, get them out of their paganism to accept God. Um, and then, then he can teach them. He says, well, how do I learn about this God? Then at that point he'll say, let me give you the Hebrew Bible. Let me give you the Bible um, at that point. But he's, he's, he's trying to get these pagans to God. This is where we're probably at in our culture, by the way. You know, before you can convince them of the truth of Jesus, you've got to convince them of the truth of God. Once you get them convinced that God is, re- is real, is a reality, then you need to lead them to the second step and say, okay, if there is a God, a grand creator, if there is a God, may that God have spoken. May that God, can that God reveal himself to us? Can that God tell us things? Well, if you can get them to that point, then you got them. You say, well, let us talk now about what he's told us. That's where Scripture comes into play. If you, you, know, if you believe in a God, then it should not be illogical that you can believe in a God that reveals himself, that speaks, that communicates. Well, at this point, you just got to give them to God first. That's why C.S. Lewis went from being an atheist to believing in God, and it took him about another year before he, before he embraced Christ. As, as, the, um, as the ultimate revelation of God. Anyway, so there's a little taste. You get more of this in Athens, where Paul is preaching to a purely pagan audience, a, a spiritual audience, a God that uh, he's, pre- he's speaking here to a religious audience, that's what he's going to do in Athens. He's going to speak to a religious, spiritual audience. They know nothing, though, of Hebrew Scriptures. Um, again, a lot like our culture. They want to be spiritual out there. They don't have anything to do uh, with um, the revelations that God has given. They, they, they want to be spiritual. They want to be spiritual without divine revelation. They usually want to be spiritual without other people because they're irritating. Um, they want to be spiritual. They want to be religious. Well, and that's a start that's a start, then you have to get them to view God the way we think is the true and living God, to quote Paul's preaching here, and then you can, then you can work them toward Jesus. But here he's just trying to get them to God, away from their paganism to God. So look at how it ends here. Um, verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. They, they just, they, they know what, the people know what they know. And they have a hard time seeing any... Their worldview is what it is. So yeah, they still want to offer sacrifice to, to Zeus and Mercury, or Zeus and Hermes. Now look at this. Here's, it gets really interesting here. But Jews, again, Pac-Man. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. Now they just went 10 seconds ago saying they're gods, some people come to town and stir them up, and now they say, let's kill them. Says something about human nature, doesn't it? Anyway, these Jews come. Uh, um, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city. Again, the Jews are leading this because stoning outside the city is a Jewish way, supposing that he was dead. Now, we've expended a lot of ink on this one, supposing that he was dead. Well, it does sound like he's not dead, but he sure is close to dead, Paul. Sure is close to dead. Now, some people, 
And it's kind of fun to think about this. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about, I know he says, he starts off talking to third person, but he finally blows his cover and he goes to first person. He says, I know a man who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven and had visions of God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, some people say that might have been this. He, he's having a, what some would call a near-death or post-death experience. Uh, the crowd looks at him and thinks he's dead. They have stoned Paul to death. Um, the problem with that, you can't really do that with that text in 2 Corinthians because Paul says, I knew a man who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. The chronology doesn't fit. Um, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians uh, within just three or four years of this. Anyway, so he's, he's either dead or he's not. <laughs> That's profound theology, isn't it? And there's been a lot of ink expended on, is, is, it's a miracle one way or another. He, he looks dead, he, he's obviously unconscious, but he's going to jump up and walk back into the city. So it's, some, it's a miracle to some extent, either he is dead or almost dead. Um, I think Luke's use of the word, and it's Dr. Luke, by the way, used the word supposing he was dead. I think Luke's implication is he's not dead, but he sure is close. He looks unconscious. The crowd thinks he's dead. Uh, Paul talks later about being stoned uh, near death. So, um, yeah, they just they get, and notice he's been there long enough now. There are disciples, verse 20, there are disciples gathered around Paul. He's planted a church. That's what he's doing here. There are disciples gathered. There are Christians gathered around him. I think Luke wants you to say they're gathered around looking at him, trying to figure out if he's dead or not, and all of a sudden he just gets up. He rose up. He entered the city. um, And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. That made an impact, I'm sure, in that city. Even if, he, it is a, even if it's not a resurrection from the dead, it, it is a phenomenal recovery from what looks like death to the crowd. But again, notice, you know, Paul's following the lead of the Spirit. Um, he didn't flee when the Jews created the turmoil, did he? Like he did when he left, um, like he did when he left Iconium. He stayed there. He let, him, he let himself be stoned to death or almost to death there in Lystra. By the way, again, these, some of these disciples that are gathered around him, figuring out, trying to figure out if he's dead or not, Timothy, Eunice, and Lois that you're going to learn more about later. So he planned a church here in Lystra. Anyway, so yeah, they get up and they go to Derby. Um, we don't read much about Derby. Verse 21 just simply says, when they had preached the gospel to that city... And had made many disciples. Watch this. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They're backtracking. Again, geography is important. They're backtracking. These are places they had planted churches. So what are they doing now? They're not planting churches. Look at verse 27, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So he's backtracking to these cities to strengthen the churches. At this point, he's being more pastoral. First trip, evangelist, plant the churches. Now he's being more pastoral. He's trying to teach these people. And he says, oh, by the way, yeah, you, you will suffer now that you've come to Christ. 
It's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And he's organizing. For people who don't like organized religion, there's nothing inherently wrong about organization. You have to have organization. So Paul is going back now, helping the churches he has planted. He's backtracking on this first missionary journey. Uh, He's teaching them, verse 23, and when they had appointed elders, there's his organization, He's appointing elders, presbyters, uh, leaders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So he goes back to strengthen the churches. That's why eventually he's going to write the the letter to the Galatian churches. That's these churches because he planted churches there and they, 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 they thrived. They grew. So here comes the end. So this is the end of the first missionary journey. Verse 24, wrapping up. Then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. All this is backtracking. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, that's probably where he got sick. That's where John Mark left them, remember. And they went down to Italia. That's the port city that he landed at to do this. Now he's back in the port city because where is he going? Verse 26. And from there he sailed back to, to Antioch, uh, the, the one that's in what we would say Syria. Uh, that's the, the center of his mission, uh, Antioch. So he goes back to Antioch because uh, he, he wants to report to headquarters. He sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for their work and they had, that they had fulfilled. So he, they were sent out from Antioch. They're returning to Antioch. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So he goes back to Antioch, gathers the church, and gives them a report of his first missionary journey. And uh, they remained no little time with the disciples. That's a Bible way of saying they remained a significant time with them. Uh, so he probably was there for about a year because we know when the Jerusalem Council happened. So he's there for about a year with them. Uh, so he's made his first missionary journey. He's returned back to the people that sent him out on his first missionary journey. And that sets us up for chapter 15, which is going to be very significant because most of you look Gentile to me in this room. You should want to know how Jewish do you have to be to be Christian? How do you read and view and use the Old Testament. Um, what part of the Old Testament still stands? What part has been fulfilled in Christ? Uh, that's the discussion um, in Jerusalem. Notice he's at Antioch, which is his center of, of his missionary work, the city of Antioch, uh, you know, north of Jerusalem, there in present, what we would call Syria. I keep saying what we would call Syria because the city themselves has linked themselves to Turkey, but they're sort of Syria. So, but you're going to see when they really have to have a real big conference, a real big gathering of the church, where do they go to? They go back to Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to be at in chapter 15. You got to get, you got to get the Jerusalem Council, the Jerusalem Conference, the Jerusalem ruling out of the way for Paul then to um, start his third missionary journey. So, that's a, we, covered, we literally covered a lot of ground. We covered about half the nation of Turkey on this. So that's his first missionary journey there. Let's pray together. God, we're so grateful that you are God. We recognize you as God. And we recognize that you are a God that communicates. 
You are a God that speaks. You are a God that reveals yourself. You have not only revealed yourself in nature, but you've revealed yourself in your word. And we thank you, God, that you have loved us, that in our ignorance, you have, you have spoken truth to us. God, we thank you for so loving us that you want a relationship with us, that you reveal yourself to us so that we can know more about you. We can know your nature. We can know your heart. We can know your desires. We can know your will. And we pray, God, for the grace to follow your will. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.